And uh, how many of you would like to confess right now that you've said before, that's not fair? How many of you have said it uh, before the age of 10? Keep your hands up. After the age of 10? After the age of 20? After the age of 30? After the age of 100? Anybody? (laughs) You know, the statement, that's not fair, is really another way of expressing the problem of evil. See, whenever you say something is not fair, you have a sense that there should be a way that things go. Or you might put it this way. This is the way it ought to be, but it's not. And I find that to be a problem. Now, we, we find that to be a problem because what we're doing, and you may not realize you're doing this, but when you say that's not fair, you're appealing to a standard. You're saying that, that there should be a standard. There should be an ought. This is the way things ought to go. And by doing that, you're really appealing to a moral law. And by virtue of that, you're appealing to a moral law giver. Because there really can't be a standard without the standard who is God. Thus, in another way, we're really saying, hey, I believe there should be a standard. You know, uh, in uh, universities and uh, intelligentsia and all these things that are going on, there's a lot of talk about relativism and, you know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and... Morals really are irrelevant. They're up to the person or the community until someone takes something that belongs to you, like they take your stuff or they steal your car. Then you think thou shalt not steal is a pretty good idea. And, uh, you know, these things that are discussed in some of the ivory towers of education don't work in real life. The Ten Commandments are a really good thing. And uh, today, you know, You can have a Bible at school and have it taken away from you. You can try to put scriptures somewhere and get, you know, in trouble with the principal. But you can celebrate and put on display virtually everything else and it's okay. But your Bible and the Ten Commandments, oh. People trying to tell people about God and hope and that kind of thing, right? That's not fair. Now, we're going to see two chapters where you can look at that's not fair in two different ways. The first chapter we're going to look at is the unbeliever through a sermon from a person that we've met in the book of Job before, and we'll see him in chapter 20, verse 1. His name is Zophar, and he's going to preach a sermon about what happens to the godless person or the wicked person, and we're going to say that his sermon is going to be right on. What he preaches is true, but I've introduced this to you before, and it's something important to remember that even though what he says is largely true, he misapplies it. In other words, he applies the truth of the godless and their end to a man who is not godless, to a man who is a believer, and his name is Job. But what Job is at this point in his life is a struggling believer. And I won't ask for a show of hands tonight, but I would imagine that there's probably a few of you who would consider yourself right there tonight. You're a believer, but you're a struggling believer. And whatever the reasons for your struggle are, whether they're intellectual or scientific or emotional or the problem of evil. In fact, we've called this whole series the problem of evil, but the power of the gospel. And we're talking about the fact that the power of the gospel is the only answer to the problem of evil. And so what we're going to hear is we're going to hear from this This guy named Zophar about the godless person who doesn't receive Christ as Lord and Savior and their fate because of their lifestyle. 
And then Job is going to turn it around and he's going to say in chapter 21, which will be for next Wednesday, he's going to say, look, what I actually see is that the godless seem to be getting away with everything, long life, enjoying everything, and I'm a righteous man and I'm suffering. And sometimes as a believer, we all realize that that can happen at times, that we've tried to do the right thing, whether it's in our employment or at home or we've taken a stand for righteousness and we've suffered as a result. And I've been introducing to you the fact that in the book of Job, and I think this is a big reason why the book of Job is in our Bibles, is to introduce a concept to you called redemptive suffering. See, Job is a foreshadowing of the greater Job, whose name is Jesus, who will suffer unjustly. If anybody could say, that's not fair, it would have been Jesus. Because Jesus was completely innocent. If you were standing and you were Jesus' mom and you were watching him die on the cross, you could say, that's not fair. If you were Peter or John or anybody else who followed him and watched him, watched power flow out of his life like no power has been, been seen before, where he would calm the sea, cast out demons, cure diseases, raise the dead. Nobody ever spoke like this man spoke. And for him to die in the way that he did, really being crucified as a criminal of the state and someone who had broken the law in the sense of, that's what the Jews said about him, that he had blasphemed God, but he had not. He was God in human flesh. We could say that's not fair. And technically it wasn't fair, but it happened so that you and I could be redeemed. So we're going to be looking at some of these ideas tonight so let's just take a moment to pray father each time we come before your holy word we know we're going to meet your truth and we're going to meet you in a fresh way and we're we're going to hear things that we need to hear because your word is alive all scripture is inspired by god and is profitable your word doesn't come back void and your word is like rain or snow that comes down on the earth and waters it and produces a crop produces growth but the dependent thing, or the thing that really matters, I think, tonight, is our hearts. We want to hear the word of God with an honest and sincere heart. And so we're crying out to you for all distractions to be put aside, for all the weights that we carry into a place like this, all the questions we may have in our hearts. And I pray that you would speak, you would add and take away from what I've prepared, and we would hear from you, Lord. And that if we need to, we would amend our ways to yours. If we need some encouragement tonight, that that would happen as well. May you lead this where you want it to go for your glory and for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Now Job, uh, as he goes through all these dark moments, he says in 1923 of Job, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Ironically, they are. <laughs> that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. 1925 of Job. And then he says, as for me, I know, I don't wonder, I don't guess, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, and he was a disaster, and I think he's talking about the resurrection here, Yet from my flesh, in a new body, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Man, I'm, I'm troubled. 
If you say, how shall we persecute him and what pretext for a case against him can we find? Now he's addressing his friends, so-called comforters. He said, then be afraid of the sword for yourselves for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. After Job cries out and gives us this glimmer of hope that I know my Redeemer lives and there's been songs written about it, we've sung about them at Easter time and so forth, he then turns to his friends who have been poor comforters really from the very beginning of the book and he says to them, you better be careful because the judgments that you're coming to about me are going to fall on you. And by the same standard that you judge, it will come back to you. And we already know that a judgment's been declared from heaven, that Job is a righteous man, that there's nobody like him. So the friends are the ones that are wrong. And even though Zophar is going to preach what I would consider a penetrating, hard sermon about the reality of the wicked, he will misapply it because Job is not that man. Job is a believer. I mentioned to you a struggling believer, but he is a believer nonetheless. When we ask questions like, that's not fair, we usually say something like this, I acted this way or I said this or they acted this way and said this. This should be the result, right? And I would say, not necessarily. Not necessarily. The world is not always fair. Have you noticed? We long for it to be fair. And there's a world coming where the Bible describes new heavens and new earth where righteousness will dwell. That's what's ahead for us. Where Jesus will rule righteously with a rod of iron. That's coming, but that's not now. We live in a time where there's much corruption. Many backroom deals. Many nasty things that happen that we, many of us don't even know maybe a tenth of what's going on in the world behind the scenes, things that come out later, things that are corrupt and unjust. And Zophar, the Namathite, this is Job 20, verse 1, answered, and he answered Job's cry, I, I know that my Redeemer lives, lives. I'm going to have an advocate, I'm going to be vindicated one day, Job is saying, and Zophar gets the warning in that last part of chapter 19 where Job essentially says, watch out the way you judge. It'll come back to you. And then Zophar, the Namathite, answers. And his answer is not going to be pleasant. He said, therefore, my disquieting thoughts, Job 20, verse 2, make me respond. And even because of my inward agitation, I listen to the reproof which insults me. And the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. NIV says, my understanding inspires me to reply. I must respond to Job now. I must reply, I just can't let this one go. <laughs> you ever been there before? You ever been in a little spat with somebody that you love or care about? And they say something, and it's, ooh, ow. And then you have a moment of decision. Should I respond? And how should I respond? Should I give them a zinger right back? It feels good when you first release it. Right? Here, God, take it, God. And then it goes in and you watch them. And then you go, man, that doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel. Sometimes when you feel like you have to, I just got to respond. That can't be left right there. Ask yourself why. And oftentimes, the answer to that question 
is because my pride has been hurt. I just can't let it go. I can't give you the last word. I'm going to get the last word in, even if it's yes, dear. <laughs> That's an inside joke for those of you who are married, but never mind. I'm insulted. Now, why is Zophar insulted? I mean, Job is the one who's a disaster. Job's the one who is sick. Job's the one who's lost all of his kids. Job's the one who's lost his estate. These guys came on a mission of mercy, or so they said. Why is he insulted? Because Job finally looked at him and said, I would just be careful how you judge, because it could come back on you. Oh, I'm insulted. We're the ones giving the advice here. We're the ones giving the reproof here, buddy. You just sit there on that ash heap and keep suffering, and we'll keep telling you what's wrong with you. It's pretty easy when you can tell everybody else what's wrong with them, right? Then it comes back at you like, oh, how dare you? No, 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 I'm the one giving the critiques here. See, if you're a critical person, watch out, because when criticism comes back to you, my question is, how do you take it? These guys didn't take it well at all. They were insulted. Look at uh, Job 19, look at verse 1. Job responded in the previous chapter to them, and he said, How long, Job 19, 2, will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you've insulted me. You're not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I truly erred, and I'm open to that possibility, Job might say, my error lodges with me. But it seems like this has become a very personal interaction between these guys and Job. Almost like a fight for whose truth is actually true. And these guys cannot break with their system. They believe that if you do good, good will come back to you. And if you do evil, evil will come back to you. And that's the end of the story. And so Job, you have to be suffering because of some hidden evil that you have done. Just admit it and we'll pack our bags and go home. But Job won't admit it because he doesn't know what he's done wrong. I want you to flip all the way in your Bible to Matthew 15. Jesus had many interactions with the religious leadership of his day. Some of them actually ended up trusting in Jesus, but they were certainly not the many, but the few. Matthew 15. And Jesus would have these interactions with them. And this is, uh, let's pick up the account in Matthew 15. Jesus is challenging them and he said for God said Matthew 15 for honor your father and mother and he who speaks evil of father or mother let him be put to death but you say whoever shall say to his father or mother anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God he is not to honor his father or his mother and thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition you hypocrites Jesus says to them Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, far away from me. In vain do they worship me. That's a radical statement. Some people can allegedly worship God, but it can be vain or empty. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after he called the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, to Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But Jesus answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. 
Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. You see, what the religious leadership wouldn't do, and I'm talking about the majority of them because a few of them became believers, is they wouldn't break from their tradition and their system to the word of God. Imagine what they saw. They saw Jesus, or at least secondhand heard of his miracles. Let's go back to the book of Job. He answered all their questions, stumped them every time, did miracles, calmed the sea, raised Lazarus from the tomb, raised other people. What more did they need to believe in him? What kept the religious leadership from believing in Jesus? A couple things. Pride. Protection of their positions and their nation. They said, if we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him, and then we'll lose our spot and our influence. Never mind that the word of God, truth embodied, truth incarnate, was standing in front of them, the Messiah that they said they were waiting for, yet they would not listen. Zophar goes on in Job 20, verse 4. He's speaking to Job, and certainly we can't avoid the fact that he's applying this to Job. And he says, he says do you know this from old, verse 4, chapter 20? From the establishment of, of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, key word, and the joy of the godless momentary, short and momentary are words that you should highlight. Though his loftiness, that of the ungodly, or his height, ESV, or pride, reaches the heavens, and his head touches the clouds. Uh, we'll talk about what happens to him in a moment. How many of you heard Greg Laurie's message today on his program? Greg Laurie was talking about a guy who... Uh, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to commit suicide. He was struggling with suicidal thoughts, and he was on a bus, and he was on the top of the Golden Gate Bridge where I guess thousands of people have jumped to their death. And uh, a few people survived, but it's a very small percentage. It's a, I don't know how many stories down, you're going 75 miles per hour when you hit the water when you jump off that, that bridge. So he's contemplating suicide, and he said, if someone just asked me how I'm doing, ask me the question, I'll open up my entire heart to them, and I'll know that I shouldn't do this. So a lady stopped him, blonde lady, curly hair, and she stopped him, and he thought, oh, this is it. And she asked him actually to take her photograph. And would you take a picture for me was, was essentially what happened. So he's up on the bridge, ready to jump, and she wants photos taken. And he said she didn't just want photos. She was posing for like five minutes, different, <laughs> you know. And he's clicking. He's like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm, a, I'm about to jump off this bridge, and this lady's posing for all these pictures. So he gives her the camera back. She never asked the question, and he leaps off the Golden Gate Bridge. He said when he hit the water, this is, there's a couple different versions out there, but when he hit the water... I think he broke his back and he couldn't feel his legs. And of course, when you hit the water, you go way underneath, right? So now you have to find a way to get back to the surface with no legs, no operation of your legs. And so he's trying to get back to the surface because he's saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. He knew it was a mistake the moment he left the top of the bridge, right? And this is what he says to people contemplating suicide. Don't do it. There's hope for you. He hit the water Somehow got himself up to the surface, but was struggling, you could imagine, to keep himself up there and was crying out to the Lord. 
I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And he said he saw something dark circling below him and he thought it was a shark. He said, oh great, here I am trying to survive this suicide attempt. I want to live and then there's a shark that's going to eat me. Well, whatever this thing was, he, stood, he said he started to try to punch it and it kept pushing him up to the surface, pushing him up to the surface to breathe until the Coast Guard finally got there and saved him. He found out later that what was, what was pushing him up was not a shark, it was a sea lion. And the sea lion actually saved his life by continuing to push him to the surface so he could breathe. And Greg said, you know, you guys have heard the story of Jonah and the whale or the great fish. Well, this is a story about, I think his name is Kevin, Kevin and the sea lion. <laughs> Save me, God! And here comes this. And sea lions are cool, aren't they? They have a cute little face and... And he was just pushing him up. So apparently God speaks both fish, whale, and sea lion. See, yeah, his name is Kevin Hines, if you want to look up the story. The higher you climb, oftentimes the harder you fall. And people get proud and... They almost feel like their head's in the clouds, man. I got it all together. It's, it's going on for me now, man. I'm bigger than life. And I've watched movie stars and professional athletes who have achieved great success, and I've seen uh, humility in their lives at the beginning. And then, have you guys noticed this? There's some people, and I'm not going to name names right now, but there's particular people, for example, in the NFL and other places that have become so prideful, they become prima donnas, and they are shooting themselves in the foot. All their success has gone to their head. It's a real danger. It's something that we have to guard ourselves because whenever God may use us uh, to touch somebody else or maybe have success in business or whatever, we have to fight giving the glory to God. We, we have to fight not being prideful. See, this was part of the issue with the religious leaders. They couldn't humble themselves and admit that Jesus was the Messiah. You can see the emphasis on the, the godless, wicked man, short, momentary. His, uh, Zophar is saying, this is an undeniable spiritual law. The happiness, joy, laughter of the wicked is short and momentary. In Genesis 11, the people tried to build a tower called the Tower of Babel that would reach up into the heavens. And God wanted them to disperse and spread out, but they said, no, we're going to come together and build and we'll build a tower. And some people thought, some scholars believe they, they built the tower to storm the gates of heaven as if they were going to try to take over. We'll build it high enough to reach the heavens. See, that's the mentality of man. That's the mentality, by the way, if you've heard the term humanism, humanism is all about man being the center of the universe. That man is, is the ultimate superhero and power of all time. Never mind God. God is dead. Or God needs to move aside because I guess he hasn't realized my greatness. And God sits in the heavens and laughs. But this is what man does. Now as a believer, we could say, I'm afflicted but not crushed. I'm perplexed, but not despairing. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for the believer an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, 
but to the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Now, you as a believer, you may suffer unjustly. You may have a health challenge at the moment. You, might, I mean, you may have uh, you know, too many bills and you can't pay them or whatever is going on. Emotionally, you're hurting. But as a believer, I can know that the momentary light affliction is producing something for me, an eternal weight of glory. The unbeliever, godless man, woman, this is all you got. This is the best it's going to be. So you ought to get everything you can because human happiness is short-lived, terribly short-lived. You see, he, the wicked, perishes forever, verse 7, like his refuse or his dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream. We often dream, you know, we dream every night, but we remember very few of our dreams. They cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no more, and his place no longer beholds him. I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but if you were to do a search on how many famous people died in the last five years, you would be soberly shocked. You'll see picture after picture of people that you may not even know. They're gone. People you saw on movie shows years ago, uh, sitcoms, movies, or whatever, many of them are gone. It's over. The earthly existence that they had is no more. And it's amazing how quickly people will forget you. For those of you who follow sports, you know, you can be following a team that you like, and then someone will uh, give a highlight from 10, 15 years ago, and you go, oh, I remember that player. Because professional athletes don't always have long careers. It's the exception rather than the rule. If you're a running back in the NFL, what, you're lucky if you get maybe four or five years uh, of, you know, and so what we need to know about life is, is it can, there's a brevity of life. It could be, it, it can fly by. He flies away, look at verse eight, just like a dream. This is why Moses said in Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to, to thee, O Lord, a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days. Make the most of every opportunity, brethren, because the days, they're evil. You don't know how much time you're going to have. Now this is not meant to be morbid, but this is what Zophar is essentially saying to Job. He's saying, man, to me, the way it looks right now, you don't have long to live, bro. So you better fess up. You see, you only have so much time to live wisely. And it doesn't matter what age you are right now. There's many people sitting in this room right now that regret the years that they let go by without serving Jesus. And they could come up and tell you stories. So if you're younger right now, I would just tell you, the book of Ecclesiastes is written for you to honor your creator in the days of your youth. To not do stupid things just because you're young. You see, to heed the wisdom that's been left for you. He now moves to the wicked man's legacy. He will leave very little behind. Look at verse 10. His sons favor the poor. His hands give back his wealth. This, there's a little tough to translate this, but here's a couple other versions. ESV verse 10 says, His children will seek the favor of the poor 
and his hands will give back his wealth. And then the NIV renders this, his children must make amends to the poor. His own hands must give back his wealth. Now this is a picture of a godly, wicked person who manipulated his way to get wealthy. He ripped people off. He took advantage of people. He seized property. He manipulated. And he got, he got the cash. He, he, he was like the tax collector of old. Like the little wee man who was up in the trees at Chius, and Jesus came to his house and he wanted to pay everybody back because he felt bad for what he had done. Well, this man, this is the legacy that he leaves. He, his kids either have to ask favor of the poor, like get money from the poor to live, or they have to make amends to the poor people that he ripped off. A sad legacy of a father. This weekend, this last weekend, we went up on a men's retreat. We had about 75 guys up in Running Springs, and we had a great time. Very powerful weekend. And in each session of the four, uh, different guys shared their testimonies. And it was amazing to me because each guy that went up there was a pretty strong, masculine guy with facial hair. Everybody had a beard who shared a testimony. And I'm talking about some, some pretty, like, buff, manly men. But in each case, when a dad came up, when a father figure came up, it wasn't good. And it, and it reminded me of the power of a father, either for negative or positive uh, consequences. If you didn't have a good situation with a dad, you know how you can reel from that your whole life. And I'm one of those guys. Uh, I really ever, never even knew my dad. And then my mom remarried, and her second husband was a bank robber <laughs> and got arrested at my house in an apartment with shaving cream on his face while I watched my second dad be hauled away. And then my third dad, um, stepdad, I'll just put it this way, it wasn't the Brady Bunch when they got married. And it was a blended household and it was, it was rough. But when each man went up there and shared their testimony, I'll have to, I have to tell you that the impact of not a great example from a father reverberated in their life. And you can see that in verse 10 here. And maybe that's you. I would just say that, you know, for guys that I've talked to, and this is true of my own story, that my, my negative examples, plural, motivated me to be a good dad. And I wanted to be present, and I wanted to be faithful to my wife, and I wanted to be present in my children's lives, and God used that as a motivator. And I only learned how to be a man from watching other Christian men. I, don't, I didn't know what it meant to be a man. I thought being a man was being strong in the gym or uh, sports, uh, you know, conquests or having a bunch of girls or a cool car or partying or whatever. I just didn't understand. You see, his bones, 11, are full of his youthful vigor. Man, he looks so strong, but... It lies down with him in the dust. If you've ever seen uh, the story of a person who dies at a young age, people will say he was so full of life. It's hard to imagine that a person like that was cut down in their prime only to lay in the dust next to a person that's also laying in the dust. If you've ever laid a loved one to rest or been at a, a memorial service or a graveside, it's hard not to walk through a cemetery and start to look at dates. And for some of you, you may notice that the dates are getting closer and closer to your dates. 
In fact, sometimes you look at uh, gravestones and that person was born after you. And you're like, hmm. Right? And I've shared some stories with you guys that I've, I've presided over services where we had to lay a little baby to rest in a little tiny casket. And these bring up all kinds of questions about the problem of evil. Job lamented in Job 7.21 that he would lie down in the dust. He thought his next stop was the grave. It wasn't, but that's how he felt. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, look at verse 12, the still speaking of the ungodly wicked man, and he hides it under his tongue. So evil now is uh, pictured here as almost like a sweet or a food. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, he hides it under his tongue. Though he desires it and will not let it go, he cannot bear to let it go, NIV, but holds it in his mouth. Have you guys ever watched those cop shows where they catch somebody, they're, they're chasing somebody, and the person tries to swallow the drugs? And they'll put the drug, and the, and the officer will say, do you have drugs in your mouth? Right? And here, you know, it's like if you've ever been on a diet and you're trying not to eat carbs or sweets and there's cake at the office, my wife can do this really well. She'll say, just give me a taste of it and she'll taste the chocolate cake and swish it around in her mouth. And, okay, I'm good. And I'm like, no, I'm not good with that. No, no, no. <laughs> I want a slice of that cake, right? Then I might be good. <laughs> well, the evil person ingests put this in quotes, the sweetness of sin and swishes it around in their mouth. Almost like you would do with mouthwash. Swishing it around. And they go, oh, oh yeah, that tastes good. And we have to acknowledge that Moses, it says of Moses that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God, listen to this, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin can be exciting and fun for a season. When you swish it around in your mouth and you do that, you're like, man, that tastes good. Man, that's good. And may, what's the problem with this? It, it's, it's pleasurable and it's, and it's fun and exciting and, and all of that. It, it tastes good. The, they enjoy the sweet taste of wickedness, New Living Translation, letting it melt under their tongue. They savored it holding it long in their mouths. Yet, or but suddenly, New Living Translation, his food in his stomach is changed, or New Living turns sour to the venom of cobras within him. Sin tastes good for a while until you start swallowing it. And be assured, my brother or sister, please hear me well, when you start swallowing sin, it becomes a part of you. And sin ultimately will make you sick. And see, the devil's ploy is, it's exciting, it's fun, it's pleasurable. Give it a try. And you do it, and you swish around in your mouth, and you're like, man, that's good. What's the problem? And then you swallow it, and all of a sudden, see, the commercials never show you the morning after. When you drank all night with your buddies, oh, it did fun, and yeah, yeah, And then the next morning, there's no commercials about you before the porcelain god. Having your face 
in a place where your face was never intended to be. Right? And there, things lock up because you've essentially poisoned your body. And your body's trying to get rid of it, to get it out. It's hard truth, but I'll tell you this. For those of you who mess with sin and you swished it around and you tried it, and then all of a sudden you doubled over because the consequences came home to roost, it happens. It happens like night follows day. Right? Anybody who's sitting here tonight who's been embroiled in a sin where it was exciting at the beginning, and, you know, this is true with drugs and alcohol. It can be true with, you know, sex outside of marriage. It can be true with a lot of things. It's exciting and fun until all of a sudden you've got to reap the consequences of what you've done. See, God is not trying to ruin your, front, your fun, my brother and my sister. He just wants you to have fun in the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons. You see, he swallows riches but will vomit them up. And notice this, God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The, the imagery is powerful of snakes here. The viper's tongue or fangs slays him. Evil can taste good for a moment, but it leads to nausea and vomiting. You can see him doubled over in pain. Unless he gets the antidote, he's going to die in agonizing pain. And here one writer says, God is the ultimate emetic. God is the one who's causing the stuff to be expelled from the man who's ungodly. Because what he gained, he gained from deceit and intrigue. He ripped people off. And now it's coming back. And God says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to barf that up because it doesn't belong to you anyway. It's a radical image, isn't it? Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, Food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but it ends up with a mouthful of gravel. How many of you can imagine taking a mouthful of rocks or gravel and going, my grandmother tells a story of my Italian grandfather that they got in an argument one day and my Italian grandfather was a very hard-nosed, old-school Italian guy and, he, and a glass broke. Uh, something happened. I think he, he broke the glass and she was mad at him for breaking it and he picked up the broken glass and began to eat it in front of her. And blood's coming out of the side of my Italian grandfather's Mouth And my grandmother, in classic Italian style, said, Good for you! Good for you! Go ahead and bleed! <laughs> Have you ever thought back to stupid things that you did for, just to try to impress somebody or get somebody back and realize, I'm just cutting up my tongue. That's all I'm doing. I'm bleeding. They're not. Yeah, but maybe I'm making a statement. <laughs> Indeed, their rock is not like our rock, Deuteronomy 32, 31. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine, the enemies of God, is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras, Deuteronomy 32, 31 through 33. The enemies of God offered the sour wine, as one writer put it, 
The very snake the ungodly man loved to play with ended up biting him. You see, we play around with sin. And isn't it interesting that we have the image of a snake? And who's pictured as a snake in the Bible? Satan. The serpent of old, Revelation 12. I'm afraid that le- the same way that he deceived Eve, he'll deceive you, says Paul, 2 Corinthians eleven three. He does not look at the streams, 17, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. This is the idea of kind of the promised land, milk and honey, which is how the New Living has it. The honey and curds is translated honey and cream in the NIV. He returns what he has attained and cannot swallow it. And to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. For he is oppressed and forsaken the poor, has this godless man. He has seized a house which he has not built. I wonder how many men are sitting in some high-rise apartment building in a suit, having ripped off a bunch of people to get where they are. And God says, you know what? You're going to vomit that up one day. I'm going to expel it from you. I'm going to give it back to its rightful owner, and you're going to have nothing. He is oppressed. One writer says, hell is a place where all evil enjoyment is turned into endless nausea, close quote. Because he knew no quiet within him, he does not retain anything he desires. This guy was never satisfied. He had no contentment in his belly, ESV. How could he? He's completely fueled by his desires. He has not learned the secret of contentment. Paul says, I'll tell you what the secret of contentment is. Write down Philippians 4, 6 through 13. Here's what it is. Whatever's good, whatever's lovely, whatever's noble, whatever's good of good repute, if there's anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have heard and learned and received in me. Practice these things. Listen. And the God of peace will be with you. You won't just have peace from God. As glorious as that is, God will be your partner in peace. The God of peace will be with you. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. My contentment is Christ, but the godly man doesn't have Christ. So how can he be content? He has no quiet, no respite in his success because he got his success By stealing it from others. How could you be at peace at night? How do you sleep at night? When you know that's how you got it. Nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore his prosperity does not endure. In the fullness of his plenty he will be cramped. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. He's made all kinds of enemies because of what he does and how he lives. When he fills his belly, Zophar is still preaching to Job. God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he is eating. He may flee from the iron weapon, weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. He who lives by the sword, Jesus said, will die by the sword. It is drawn forth and it comes out of his back, even the glittering point from his gall. Terrors come upon him. The language here is that God has now become his enemy. And gall is symbolic of the corruption which pours out of him as he's hit with the arrows that come directly from God in judgment because he wouldn't change. There's a story of a man, Tom Papagna, he came out of the, the mafia. He was like number two in the mafia. And um, there were people literally trying to kill him. They would place bombs outside of his window, 
try to set them off. They wouldn't go off. They put them out in a field and they would go off. And even though it's true that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, there's times, and that's probably why all of us are here tonight, where we didn't get what we deserved. Jesus was cut down in his prime to suffer in our place. But do you see what Zophar is essentially saying? He's saying to Job, you're a wicked man. That's why this has come upon you. And while Zophar's message is powerful and even true, it's misapplied because Job is not that man. He's a believer. And if you're a believer, you don't have to fear these things because if God is for you, who can be against you? But this is a warning for those who are playing church, those who do not know God, those who think, I don't, know, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. No, you need the Lord. You see, complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasures and unfanned fire. Darkness and fire are two strong images for hell. will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. Zophar believes that the heavens are going to declare that Job's guilty. But Job's been saying, no, my Redeemer lives. I have an advocate on high. Final verses. The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of his anger. This is the wicked man's portion from God. Even the heritage decreed, decreed to him by God. Now everybody look up at the screen for a second. Do you know what the unbeliever says to that? That's not fair. Do you know why? They don't understand what their problem is. They don't understand sin. They don't understand the holiness of God. They don't understand what Jesus came to do for them. And maybe you're in that camp tonight. Maybe this is new to you. Maybe you're hearing my voice and you're like, I don't get it. Why would this happen? Shouldn't we just all do what we have to do to get ahead? And no. What we're supposed to do is live for God. He made us. We're supposed to love others. You guys remember the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, you know? What did we do wrong, Jacob? We, you were a great partner in business. We were just doing business. And Marley says to him, no, our business was mankind. And there we were in our money-changing hole. We wouldn't even give alms to the poor, and we had plenty of money. You see, Jesus could have said, that's not fair. The cross was not fair, but it was redemptive. And I want you to think, just as we close here, think of Job. There he is in all his misery, and here's Zophar shooting another arrow. And next week you're going to hear Job say the same thing about how he sees people succeeding, and they don't seem to have God, and he's going to say, that's not fair. Because the truth is, folks, sometimes life just ain't fair. But God is good when life's not fair. Amen? And Jesus died on the cross when life was not fair. And God has secured my place because he is so good and so gracious. Father, we are grateful for tonight. In a text that certainly is challenging and right to the heart, it's uh, also freeing to know that for Job, it really didn't apply to him because he already was a man who loved you, but he was a struggling believer who was saying that's not fair. And Lord, 
Thank you that at the end of this book, Job is going to say, the one that I heard about with my ears, I've now seen with my eyes. The one he talked about in Job 19, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the end, I'm going to see him. Oh, Job did see him and has seen him. See, all of the questions and problems that we wrestle with, Lord, can really melt away as our eyes are on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you help that dear saint who's holding on tonight? Would you help that person who has questions about the problem of evil tonight? Maybe those who wrestle with that God is a holy God, a God of judgment, but a God who poured his judgment on his son instead of us. I pray that even if we wrestle with the concept of judgment, we could realize that God loved us so much that he took the judgment. The son took the father's wrath at the cross for us. That's amazing love. So we don't have to live this way, nor do we have to die this way. We can have hope while we live and even when we face our mortality. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you keep your head and heart bowed? I don't know what would keep you from coming to him tonight, but my encouragement to you is just cry out to Jesus. Just say, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I've been living my life for myself. I've embraced the world's system and ways. And I want to live for something higher, something greater, something that will really last. Would you be my Lord and my Savior? Pray it if it's you. Would you change me from the inside out? I repent of my sin. I turn from it. I turn from my idols and all the things that I've done that are not honoring to you. And I, I turn from that and I turn to Jesus right now. Thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Be my Lord and my Savior, my God and my King. Father, for those who are making decisions, for those who maybe recently have recommitted their lives to you, or even those who may be making a recommitment right now, I pray you'll help us to have an urgency to preach this gospel of hope to folks uh, in a world where so many are hurting and confused. I, I pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of hope to everyone we're around by the way we live, what we share, and just the desire that we have to serve you, Lord. Thank you for the excitement of being uh, able to share this good news of the gospel, and I pray that it would spread and that there would be a revival, and it would start with this group right here, right now, for your glory, in Jesus' name.